Hello and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're going to see Paul give some of the clearest guidelines on what it means to be a local church fellowship and how what he said can actually transform a community. It's true that when a group of people come together, there are likely to be some challenging personalities, behaviours and relationships. It's even true when that group of people are all believers. So what sets the believers in the church apart in their dealings with one another? Tonight, Dr. Corbett continues the Freedom series with Freedom in Christ, Do Good to Everyone. Let's join him now. We're continuing through our series in Galatians and this series is based on one of Paul's shorter, not his shortest, but one of his shorter epistles uh, written to the people of what would be on a modern map, southern Turkey. But in, back in the day, it was uh, a part of the, the world generally described as Asia Minor. And here we have this, this church or group of churches, almost certainly a group of churches. And what Paul has done is we have seen he has run through the entire epistle with a fair bit of, shall we say, upset anger. (laughs) Because what's happened here is he's come to the Galatians, he's preached a word to them about being set free from sin, being set free from the need to keep the law, being set free in a way that they only have to put their faith and trust in Christ. We've seen in the previous chapter, that the Apostle Paul said, and when you do, this will dramatically impact how you treat one another. This is a really powerful point, and I think it's a very timely point for us today as the church. And it's, it's timely because while many churches struggle to attract first-time visitors, they struggle to connect with the community, they struggle to evangelize, they struggle to see people come to know Christ, and I've not met a pastor who doesn't want to see people turn to Christ, who doesn't want to see their church grow, who doesn't want to see what Christ told us to do actually happening, which is go and make disciples. So with that in mind, what we're going to see here in Paul's epistle is something that's actually going to build on this concept of how the church can be the kind of community that is attractive. Timothy Keller said there's something about the Christian story that many people who are not familiar with it would become interested in. And Timothy Keller certainly supported his idea with what he was able to do with Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. One of the things that Timothy Keller said about the claims of Christianity is that it has to be presented in a way that people look at the community of Christians believing what they claim to believe And the world, those who are not familiar with the claims of Christianity, until they see it in the the lives of a local church, and they hear the claims of Christianity, and there's something about what they're seeing in the lives of people who have been transformed by what Paul calls the Holy Spirit, who has come in and transformed their lives, that he says, it's my hope that not only will they say, I think this is true, but even perhaps before then, he says, what I really hope is they will hear our story. They will hear our message. They will hear of how they can have their lives set free from sin, guilt and shame, how they can be given a purpose that was beyond and, and outside of themselves that gave their life meaning, that those who are not 
Christians would look at Christians, hear the message and say, oh boy, I really hope that's true. I, I wish that that would be true. And the good news is, it is. And with that, I want to pray because as we now come up the home stretch, we're going to see Paul give some of the clearest guidelines on what it means to be a local church fellowship and how what he said can actually transform a community. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word now, I pray you give me the grace to be able to preach your word to these people. I pray, Father, that I would just do way more than preach, but that, Father, you would give me the ability to pastor these people. And, Father, I'm aware that what we're saying now will go out on radio. It will go out over YouTube. It will go out over the internet. It will go out and reach people whom perhaps I've never met and they've never met me. But right now, Father, spirit to spirit, I pray, please use what I say to convince people, at least with this desire, as Timothy Keller has also said, that they would hear something and they might respond, I wish that was true. And that, Lord, you would open their hearts that they might come to realize there is a God in heaven who loves them unconditionally, so much so that he has come and died in their place as their substitute to give their life the freedom from sin, guilt and shame and the idea of having to earn favor with you. And that, Lord, as they are set free, that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit who would empower them not just to live the way you created them to live, not just to live the way you've created them to, but also to live with others who believe the same thing. And that, Lord, we, your church, might be that kind of people that would cause people to look at us and say, I wish I was a part of them. I wish that I believed what they believe. And so, Father, now help me to do just that to help people to long for the wish that this was actually true. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're kicking off in Galatians chapter 6, and what we're going to see is this very same pattern that Paul has had in nearly all of his preaching, where Paul opens up his epistles by giving some pretty, pretty what we might call plain, easy-to-understand instructions. Uh, Christians generally call this doctrine. Doctrine is what we mean by this is what we believe. That's a doctrine. All doctrine in Christianity really doesn't end there. It actually begins there because that doctrine then gets translated into therefore I. And so what Paul has said here is you're not made right with God. Your life doesn't take on the meaning that your creator has given you and yet the world will lie to you and say, no, he hasn't. <laughs> Your life doesn't begin to be transformed by the Holy Spirit because you suddenly became religious. What the Apostle Paul nearly 2,000 years ago it has said to these Turkish believers is just as relevant for us today. And we need to hear what he is saying because the implications of this is absolutely dramatic and testable. So for those who might hear what I'm saying, and your response might be, I wish that was true. I wish what he was saying was true. I wish it could be that easy. 
that you would discover by putting the claims to the test that it is. And so Paul, all through the, the six chapters, and we're into the sixth chapter now, but in, through these six chapters, Paul has said, this is not just a matter of adopting a worldview. This is not just a matter of adopting a way of looking at the world or adopting a certain attitude. This is something that is a spiritual transaction in your soul. Something takes place by the power of the person of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus said, it's better that I go so that I can send to you the Holy Spirit. So we have in Christian doctrine the belief based on the truth that God is the eternal God. As C.S. Lewis said, he doesn't have a past. He doesn't even have a future. He is the eternal now. He is in the eternal realm of now. There is no passage of time in that sense with God. Therefore, God the Father, the eternal God the Father, has always had an eternal child who is identified as his son, Jesus Christ. And together, they have also been in an eternal relationship with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Divine Trinity. They have always been. We may not be able to understand that, and there's a lot of things about life we may not be able to understand. But what we can do is apprehend this truth that the Apostle Paul has had given the Galatians and now for our benefit is giving to us here today. And that is this. That as Jesus left and returned to his Father, he sent the Holy Spirit to abide forever on earth. To come alongside, not just to come alongside those who put their faith in Christ, but those who cry out to Christ in surrender of their lives. And Jesus promised that if you do that, I will send my Holy Spirit who will come and fill you. That is, you'll begin to think new thoughts. You'll begin to feel new passions. You will begin to sympathize and empathize and have a heart that cares. And that will be an inner transformation by the Holy Spirit. In this epistle, there's more teaching per verse than any other New Testament work about the role of the Holy Spirit. And Paul has been very clear that it's the Holy Spirit who works in an unbeliever to bring them to belief. So if you're hearing me today and you're saying, I don't know if I can believe that, can I tell you, you are one prayer away from belief. One prayer away, it says, God, I want to believe this. Please help me to believe. Even a simple prayer like that could transform your life right now. Paul has been talking about salvation. That is being made right with God in a very real sense, being restored to whom God had originally created our first parents to be and we were meant to be. A people who knew God, who spent time with God, who had no impediment to being in a relationship with God. And now Paul is saying, This has been made possible because the Holy Spirit has done something in you. The Holy Spirit put it in your heart that you were lost and lonely and broken and you needed to be restored into a relationship with God the Father. That's what the Holy Spirit has done. 
And the Holy Spirit has pointed you to the fact that Jesus Christ, on that very first Easter, died on a cross, mysteriously, spiritually, bearing our sin and guilt and shame. And he took that on himself to repair our relationship with God the Father. And Paul says, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. But he also says, it doesn't just end there with the individual. And I guess in our Western culture, we think very individualistic. We use expressions like, what's in it for me? Why should I do that? It's all about looking after number one, me. But the way God looks at life and the way God wants us to look at life is not by looking at us and not anyone else, but by being a part of a family. And this family is known as the church, where you have brothers and sisters, you have mums and dads, you become someone who is loved and you become someone who can love. This is the church, the family. There are people who will be married who will hear this message and you're not yet a Christian. And you will be together, able to surrender together to Christ and have him in your marriage, in your lives together. There'll be those who are listening to me right now and you're not married for some of you, you really want to be, but right now you're not. And perhaps there are some who are not married, you've never been in a meaningful relationship, and you're okay with that. You realise, and it's your desire, to kind of remain single on your own, but somehow, in a mysterious way, connected to a family. Not necessarily a biological family, but a family of people that God will place you in the midst of where you know you can be loved and where you can love. This is for you. This is what Paul is saying to the Galatians. Some of them were from a Jewish background. Some of them were from a Gentile background. Perhaps the best analogy we can give of what that might look like in our modern terms is to say some of you are Jews and some of you are Palestinians. Some of you are sworn enemies. But when you both come to Christ, there's now peace between you. You're no longer enemies. You're now brothers and sisters. This is what Paul's saying. God has got a new family. It's not based on race. It's based on grace. What he offers freely, no matter what your ethnicity, no matter what your family tree looks like, no matter whether you were orphaned or whether you were raised in a one-parent family, it doesn't matter. God loves you. He cares for you. He wants to be your eternal father. And this is what Paul has been saying to these Galatians so that they would understand it. Now he's going to say, and this is how a family looks after each other. And when I say God's plan is the church, perhaps for some of us we're going to have very might I say, romantic ideas of what that might look like. And I don't mean candlelit dinners. I mean romantic in the sense that a very starry-eyed, almost picture-perfect view of what the church looks like. For those who are not yet a Christian, or perhaps you've just become a Christian, let me tell you, I've been a Christian now for a long time, over 40 years. And I've got to tell you, I've never been in a perfect church 
And usually because I'm in it, it's not perfect. But I've been in a church where people fight, people say offensive things, people do offensive things, people will sometimes be inconsiderate of others or just not considerate in a way they should have been. And church can get really, really messy. Paul's going to open up and he's going to talk about a mess that might happen. It might already be happening. It might be about to happen. But mark his words, they will happen. It will happen. So Paul opens up with Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, where he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, a transgression is a, a wrongdoing. It's a sin, to use the short word. It's something that is wicked. It's often in full knowledge that it's wrong and yet it's done anyway. A transgression is when you step over the line into a territory you should never have gone. That's a transgression. Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. You see, the first thing I think I want to point out here with what Paul is saying is that even in a church compromised of redeemed, spirit-filled believers, some people can be, note this word, caught up into sin. Caught up. Caught up. This is a, an amazing way of phrasing this from the apostle the, the challenge that any church is going to have in their fellowship together that, that means their their interactions with each other is to deal with a professing believer someone who says yes i'm a christian i've given my life to christ i've surrendered to him i am following christ i'm doing everything you would expect a christ follower to do and then suddenly they are caught caught out caught in Caught in a shameful sin. What's the church to do? For many people, the result will be that they will be judged, perhaps inappropriately, perhaps unfairly, perhaps accused of things that they haven't done, or perhaps accused of things they have. And so this being caught brings great shame to the person caught. But it also brings great shame to the church. How do we deal with this? Paul says, you who are spiritual should deal with this. You who are spiritual should show concern and compassion. So here's the first thing I think we as believers who are a part of a church need to understand. When Paul talks about being caught, <laughs> when Paul talks about this, we need to realize people will fail us People will do things that they will regret. People will do things and sometimes they may not even know why they did it. This is being caught. It sort of contrasts with the one who, who feels that what they're doing is wrong and they confess. But Paul didn't say that. This is the one who's been caught. This is the one who perhaps was trying to hide what they were doing. And yet, you can never hide from God. 
This is an important point because what we've got here is Paul saying that there will be mistakes that happen. There will be people that try to cover them up. There will be people who become perhaps judgmental and condemning. But Paul says if you're really spiritual, you're going to show concern for that brother or sister, that brother or sister in Christ who has been caught in a sin. And how do you do that? The spiritual believer is, well, gentle and humble and patient. The spiritual believer, the one that Paul says, you who are spiritual, well, the spiritual believer is someone who is very, very self-aware. They're self-aware that they, Paul says, are at risk themselves of getting involved in something that could overtake them, easily overtake them. The temptation could be that, well, no one's seen me do it. No one will see me. No one will ever know. That's exactly what Adam and the woman in the Garden of Eden, after they ate of the forbidden fruit, must have thought when they hid themselves from God, when they heard him come, as if he could hide from God. But that's what sin does to us. It deceives us into thinking nonsense about God. So Paul says, you who are spiritual need to step in here and try to restore this one. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You see, the hallmarks of a spiritual believer include concern for a brother or a sister or someone who you know, perhaps directly related perhaps you barely know them but they're part of your church fellowship concern for a brother or a sister in christ who may become overwhelmed by circumstance and quite frankly they may be relieved that someone's caught them and you who are spiritual are to be humble and patient and kind and long-suffering with them So the hallmarks of a spiritual believer is concern for your brother or sister in Christ. This is a big deal for a church. Because oftentimes what happens is someone says something, someone does something, someone fails in some way, and someone said we must be the only organization on the planet that shoots our wounded We can mistreat people. And Paul here is saying, that's not how you do it. That is not how you do it. I recently heard a quote from uh, William Temple describing why the church is so valuable, so needed, so necessary in a culture, in a society, when he said the church is the only institution that exists for the benefit of its non-members. You see, we the church are to be a light to the world. We are to be the hope of forgiveness. We are to be the hope of restitution, reconciliation. And if we can't start with those already in our church family, we're going to really struggle to show it to those who do not yet know Christ. Perhaps you're listening to me right now and you're wondering, if I turn up in a church, are they going to judge me? And unfortunately, my answer could be, they might. They might. But I've got to tell you, the, the reason why any Christian goes to church, is a part of a church, is because they love Christ. And every one of us, that is those of us who are part of a church, are on a journey. 
were on a journey to be made more like Jesus. He was humble. He was considerate. He was patient. And he was loving. And the more we worship him and the closer we get to him, by the power of his Holy Spirit, we will be transformed into something that looks like that. May God do it in each of us. The concern could practically look like making a meal for someone. It could look like running an errand. It could be mowing their grass or visiting them just simply to show support. Perhaps they've made a mistake. Perhaps it involves giving money. Perhaps it involves some other practical kind of care, looking after their kids perhaps. Perhaps there's a way to show we, we're not condemning you. We're loving you. So Paul says, be careful. Be careful when you do this. Take care not to be judgmental as you show care. I'm doing this because you failed, fella. Sister, you failed us. You should be ashamed of yourself, but I'm here to wash your dishes. <laughs> the actions just don't carry any weight when that's the attitude, do they? So verse 3, Paul says, But if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. That's the frailty. That's why we have to take care. But let each one test his own work, Paul says, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. In other words, what you do, make sure you do it with the right motive, the right heart, to test your own work. Here's one of the tests. Am I doing this because I care? Is this an act of my service, which is essentially what love is? Is it done for their highest good? Am I doing this for the highest good of another, of the other? Am I? Or am I doing this because I want someone to pat me on the back and tell me what a great thing you're doing? You are a super Christian. Paul says, Galatians chapter 6, verse 5, For each will have to bear his own load. So we see in what Paul is saying here that the church really is like a family. It's a community. And it's like a family. And in that kind of church, that community, that family, just as a family needs leadership, a church needs leadership, a church needs pastoral leadership, a church needs the kind of organization that someone is ultimately accountable and someone is ultimately responsible. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, someone, whoever wrote Hebrews, said this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So within a church, there's leadership, there's structure, there's government, and there's authority and responsibility. So Paul says this, talking about how to be the church. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. That's Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. That's why each Sunday when we gather as a church, we take up an offering. We take up an offering because God's word tells us to. 
the one who has taught the word, that is the word of God, shares all good things with the one who teaches. So a church, just like a family, is where every member contributes to it in some way. I'm the father and Kim is the coincidentally the mother of four children. In other words, together we are parents of four children. And one of the things that we determined to do was that each child from the youngest possible age would have some area of responsibility. Whether it be setting the table, whether it would be clearing the dishes, and we always made sure that we ate our family meal together at the table because then we could banter and we could chat. And at one point I was reading through the Chronicles of Narnia, the seven volumes of the Chronicles of Narnia with my children. And so the family time is where each one can contribute in some way. Other children may have had to mow the lawn or take out the recycles or take out the rubbish or vacuum or something like that. But we all shared, we all contributed. One of my youngest children got the job of sweeping the garage and sometimes she does it and sometimes she knows who she is, she doesn't. But where you have a family, you have everyone chip in. Everyone helps. So we all contribute in some way. And Paul has just said, hey, the one who teaches the word of God, those who have received the word of God, chip in. That person who's taught the word of God, they've done their bit. You do yours. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So one of the most testable principles in the Word of God itself is that God has infused this principle into His universe. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life will from the Spirit reap eternal life, Galatians 6.8. And so we have here this principle that our acts of selfless service of one another, as we care for one another, are also seeds that we sow, which God promises will cause us to reap. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul offers this encouragement, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. If we do not give up. So the whole point of sowing and caring and showing care for the other who's failed and showing care for the one who is working hard to make this church family a family, Paul says, don't give up. Don't give up in doing good. Verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And that's the title of this message. Let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And what Paul has just done now is shown us that good theology produces good doctrine. In other words, good theology, how we understand God and what God has done produces good doctrine, that is beliefs. And that leads to good living. It's a way that once we understand who God is, once we understand what we should believe as a result of that belief, it then leads to how we treat each other. And with that, I want to close in prayer. Father, help us now to be the kind of people that you've called us to be. 
Help us to be the kind of church that you want us to be. Help us to be the hope of our community. Not because we are that hope, but we deliver a message of hope that puts us in a position of hope dispensers. Father, for those who have heard me now and perhaps they are on the outside looking in, longing to be let in, that, Father, you would show them to the door and open that door and bring them in. And, Lord, help us to play our part in welcoming those who want to know you. And, Father, I pray for those right now who perhaps might be listening to me going, this just sounds too good to be true. You're talking about a community of people who will unconditionally love each other with a high commitment that no matter what failings, no matter what disappointments, no matter what offences come our way, we will continue to love each other. And God, I know that there are people listening to me now who are saying, I'd love to be a part of something like that. I wish that was true. And the reality is, it is. And so now, Lord, I pray, work in the hearts of those people who do not yet know you. And may you put something in their heart, perhaps unpack it in a dream tonight, that, Father, they might come to know you indeed. So now, Lord, I pray for your people, that we might know the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select Galatians Part 13 from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, the hallmark of a spirit-filled believer includes concern for brothers and sisters caught in sin or overwhelmed by their circumstance and the provision of care. More from Dr. Corbett next week as we continue in Galatians. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters. Music